At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Today, we are going to be celebrating and remembering the events of Palm Sunday, specifically looking at uh, the scripture that details for us what happened on that first Palm Sunday as Jesus approached Jerusalem just a few days before he would go to the cross. We're going to see that in John chapter 12, verses 9 to 19. But before we look at those verses together, I want to share with you an experience from my own life that, that might help set the emotional temperature for some of what the expectation was on that very first Palm Sunday. And so to do that, I want to tell you about a time in my life that goes back to December of 2021, early December 2021. Now, you need to know that I am both a graduate of the University of Oklahoma and a big fan of the athletic teams of the University of Oklahoma. So like many of you, in the early days of December 2021, I spent a lot of time on Twitter looking and scanning and hoping that the university would hire someone to lead the football team. And so as as I was looking and scanning and hoping and desiring, one night during that first week of December, I get a message from a friend that says that he has on good information that an A-list celebrity is in town who's going to be playing a concert over on campus and that the, the new head football coach of the University of Oklahoma has already been selected and is on campus and is going to be introduced tonight. So even though it is 10 o'clock on a school night, do you know what I did? I got my entire family together. My wife, my son, and my dog all got in our Chrysler minivan and we headed off to campus to find the party that was getting ready to erupt. Because when we care about something, and we have hopes and expectations for that thing, and then someone comes along who embodies the fulfillment of those hopes and expectations, we tend to show up ready to celebrate. Now that night, I have to tell you, I went home disappointed. We found no party. We had some bad info. Um, But maybe those emotions, maybe you connect with those. Maybe you, like me, were driving around campus that night. Or maybe not. (laughs) I see Dave shaking his head, leaving me alone on the stage. I appreciate that, Dave. Um, But we can kind of identify with that emotion. And maybe if we can identify with that emotion, we can understand a little bit what was happening on Palm Sunday. As you have a nation that cares not just about a team, they care about their nation, they care about their future, they care about their prospects, and they have a hope that someone will come along who is able to deliver them from those nasty Romans and establish them as a free nation again. And then they they see one who they think embodies the characteristics of the one who is able to bring that kind of deliverance. And they find out that he's just over the hill And when that news hits the crowds as they're gathering towards Jerusalem, you know what they do? They get in their minivan and they drive the family out to go see the one who is approaching. The question is, were they disappointed? Or was he the real deal? Did they have good intel? Well, friends, this morning we're going to look at 
John chapter 12, and we're going to look at the original events of that Palm Sunday so that we might see that Jesus is the real deal, even though their expectations may have been a little off. So let's look at John chapter 12. I want to read for you these uh, verses, and then after I read them, we'll back up and make a couple of observations from these verses today. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, says this. It says, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Well, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees And they went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey, and he sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, O daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he, was, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And so we have John's account of what happened on that first Palm Sunday. Now I mentioned we're going to see two things from these verses today. So what are those two things? The first thing we're going to see is this. We need to see that Jesus drew a crowd. Jesus drew a crowd. As he approaches Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, the world went out to meet him. There were people that gathered around him. And I want you just to to think for a moment. What draws a crowd today? What what causes people to run out to, to meet someone? Well, it might be because they're really good at something. They're really great at at a sport, or they're really great at at leading a company or a nation, or or maybe they're they're famous just because they're beautiful. There's a whole industry in in our world today where people will flock to people just because they're beautiful. They're famous for being famous. We live in a world where people are drawn to different individuals, and so the question we ought to ask is, if people are drawn to Jesus, what drew them there? On what basis did Jesus draw a crowd? When we think about that, we might be a little bit surprised because we remember verses like Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 3 that that say this. It says, He, speaking of Jesus, had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, Jesus looked normal. He did not glow. He wasn't the prettiest person that ever lived. He did not have a halo that hovered just above his head. Jesus looked quite normal. There was nothing in his physical appearance that drew people to himself. So Jesus drew a crowd, but he didn't draw a crowd because of how he looked. And then we remember what else those verses tell us. That not only did he not have much in what he looked, but there was a certain segment of people, at least, that rejected him. It says that Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And so the question we ought to ask is, well, which is it? 
Did Jesus draw a crowd, or was he one from whom people hid their face? And the answer to that question is, well, it depends on who we're talking about. You see, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the chief priests and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, that that group, those folks rejected Jesus. They despised him, and they sent him to be a man of sorrows upon the cross. There was a group of people, religious people, who rejected Jesus in the first century. But they didn't represent everyone. There were many others who flocked to him. So what drew them? If it wasn't his physical appearance and it wasn't the endorsement of the religious elite, what drew people to Jesus? And friends, the answer to that is who Jesus was and how he treated people. See, the sinners and the tax collectors gravitated to Jesus. The religious people looked down their nose at Jesus. See, Jesus treated people, all people, especially those who have been cast off by society. He treated them with respect and with dignity. People who were sick came to Jesus that they might be healed. Relatives of people who had died came to Jesus with hopes that he might raise their loved one from the dead. Confused people came to Jesus that he might enlighten them about what God was really like and he might teach them truth in these amazing parables that they might be able to understand just a glimpse of what God was really like. People that were told, you're not welcome here, came to him because he said, let even the little children come unto me. And he interacted even with the despised of society like the Samaritans. You see, Jesus drew a crowd because of who he was and because of how he interacted with people. And so with that background, we see a scene begin to play out on that first Palm Sunday. It says that a large crowd was gathering. Now, who was this large crowd? Well, it's important for us to remember that this event happened at the beginning of the Passover celebration. Passover was a primary Jewish holiday, and with it brought a lot of people traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate that holiday in the city, because it was in the city of Jerusalem where the temple was, that was where they could make their sacrifice, and so people from all over from a Jewish background are headed to Jerusalem for the time of the Passover. Josephus will tell us that hundreds of thousands, if not at least a million travelers, came to Jerusalem in the first century at the time of the Passover. So when it says that there's a large crowd of Jews, there was a large crowd of the Jews who were present that day. But it's important for us to see that this large crowd was congealing around one. This large crowd was was gathering around one. They were coming from all over. They were headed to the city. But when word came that Jesus was there, this crowd began to focus around him. They began to gather around him to celebrate him because of who he was, because of what they had heard that he had done. And they began to to, to celebrate as they saw him heading towards Jerusalem. The crowd was there, and the crowd was gathering around him. Now, the crowd was gathering not just around Jesus, but I think this is an amazing statement that, that John makes, but it makes sense when we think about it. He says they came not only to see Jesus, but says they also came to see Lazarus. Now, now, who was Lazarus? 
Better yet, let me ask you a better question. What was Lazarus doing just a few days before this? He was, starts with a D, dead, right? And Jesus showed up. And what did Jesus say to Lazarus? Lazarus, come out. And guess what? Lazarus came out. And so that caused quite a stir. You can imagine a dead man that is now alive. People would want to interact with him. People would want to show up and say, hey, Lazarus. And he would say, what? You really are alive. Hey, Lazarus, do you want to have a meal together? And say, yes, I can't believe it. This guy was dead and now we're eating a meal together. People are flocking not just to see Jesus, but to see if what Jesus is said to have done was accurate. And they are able to verify it by talking to Lazarus. But not only did they get to see Lazarus, but think of who else was probably in that crowd. Just a little bit before that, Jesus had been in Jerusalem and he had interacted with a man at the pool of Siloam who was blind since birth and Jesus is able to touch him and his, his vision is restored. Now, this man that went from blind to now he could see, an account that's talked about in John chapter 9, if he hears that Jesus is just over the hill, you think he stayed in his house? Absolutely not. The man that gave me my vision is in the neighborhood. I'm running out to see him, and I'm bringing my mom and my dad and my cousins and all my friends. And when he got out there, they're like, who are you? I'm the man that was blind, and now I can see. And they say, how many fingers am I holding up? And he'd say, three. So you can see. I know, I can see. That's what I'm telling you. I was blind since birth. And his parents were like, yes, that's true. And now I can see. And so quite a crowd is gathering around Jesus, not only to see him, but also to see verification of the work that he had done. Now, when this is happening, not everyone is celebrating. Some react rather negatively. Those that react negatively are are defined here as the chief priests. They're the religious elite of the elite. They're the ones that run the temple and the entire operation of the religion of Judaism at that time. And they see what Jesus is doing, and they're not happy. And they see that Lazarus is raised from the dead, and they're not happy. So what's their plan? I mean, it's just shocking, isn't it? Their plan was to kill Lazarus again. I mean, he was just dead. He was raised to life. They're thinking the only way we can stop this nonsense from their perspective was not only to kill Jesus, but also to kill anyone whose life had been changed by him. And so they wanted to stamp out any evidence of his identity, as if killing Lazarus was going to do any good. I mean, he raised him once, but that's their plan. And the reason why they wanted to kill Lazarus was because of the testimony that Lazarus gave, the verification that he gave to Jesus' identity. They wanted to weaken that any way that they could. And they weren't alone in these thoughts. Verse 19 tells us that the Pharisees also were opposed to what was happening here. And they say to the chief priests, you see that you're gaining nothing. In other words, you're not slowing down this Jesus movement at all. They say, look, the entire world is going out to him. The Pharisees and the chief priests, the religious elite, they wanted to do away with Jesus. Now, why 
were they so opposed to Jesus? Why? Well, leave it to Pilate to give us some insight. Remember Pontius Pilate that stood over the trial of Jesus? Pilate was no friend of the Pharisees. He was no friend of Jesus, certainly. He was no friend of the chief priests. And yet Pilate is able to see the motivation of the chief priests and the Pharisees. And we see this in Matthew 27, 18. It says, for for he, Pilate, knew that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered Jesus up for crucifixion. See, the chief priests had quite a racket going on. They were able to sell the lambs for sacrifice. They were able to sell the lambs for sacrifice at a markup. They required you to change money into a special temple currency that they profited on again. You know who the wealthiest people in Jerusalem were in the first century? They were the priests. Jesus comes along and threatens their entire system, and they don't like it. And everybody went to the Pharisees for all their questions. They wanted to know what God was like. They would go to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were intoxicated with the power of telling people what they were to do. And Jesus comes along and says, this is who God really is. This is what it looks like to really walk with him. And suddenly, there are more people at the Jesus party than the Pharisee party, and they're threatened. And it was out of envy that these two groups conspired together to turn Jesus over for crucifixion. But friends, make no mistake, make no mistake, Jesus drew a crowd. And I just want to challenge you for a moment. Is that how you imagine Jesus? Do you imagine Jesus as one who draws a crowd? Do you imagine Jesus as one that sinners and tax collectors gravitate towards because of the way that he treats them? Now, make no mistake, Jesus looked at them and said, go and sin no more. It's not that he watered down the truth, but the way that he treated them and the process of that was vastly different from the way they were treated from anyone else. Those who were sick, those who were wounded, those who were hurting, those who were needy, they all flocked to Christ and they all gravitated to him in this moment in history. And it reminds us of who Jesus really was. See, friends, I'm afraid that in our world today, all too often, we have a religion, but we don't have a Savior. We have a a set of tenets, a set of beliefs that we coldly hold on to with white knuckle grips, all the while forgetting the Savior who bled and died for us. And as we approach Easter this year, I'm not asking you to give up your beliefs. We need our beliefs. We need the Scripture. But friends, look afresh again at the Savior that drew a crowd to himself. And as you think about that, I want to just ask you this question. He drew a crowd in the first century, but does he draw you? Is he drawing you in today? Seeing who he is again, remembering who he is again, are you drawn to him? May we never lose the wonder of his mercy. Are we drawn to him today? Well, as we think about us being drawn to him, I I want us to look at the expectations of those who were drawn to him in the first century. So they went out there because they saw in him someone who embodied these things. But as they went out to meet him, a number of their expectations become clear. And this passage details them for us. One of their expectations revolved around where Jesus was headed. He was going to Jerusalem. 
And he was headed to Jerusalem from Bethany up and over the Mount of Olives and down to the city of Jerusalem. Now, that may not mean much to you, but it meant a whole lot to them because their conversations were like this. Hey, guess who's here? Jesus. And that was a big deal because Jesus spent most of his time in the north, in the, in the Galilean region. He didn't spend a bunch of his time in Jerusalem. So Jesus coming to Jerusalem was a big deal. But he was coming to Jerusalem up and over the Mount of Olives, and that was significant because as they would talk, they would say, what do the Old Testament prophets say about Messiah's approach to the city? And they would say, well, it says that he's going to come to the city over the Mount of Olives, and he's going to come to Jerusalem. And so they start getting juiced. They start getting excited. Wait a minute. Jesus is coming, and he's coming through the Mount of Olives to the city of Jerusalem. They have a hope that he's coming to bring some deliverance to the people. Not only do we see that in the location, but we see that in what they do. It says they, they, they took out branches of palms. Now, now, you might wonder, did everybody just travel with a palm branch? Is that just kind of what you did? You had your overnight bag, your shaving kit, and your palm branch. Is that how you packed in the first century? Well, not really. These are date palm branches that were abundant in that region. So they were accessible to the crowd. But they also were somewhat of a national symbol. It would be like us waving a flag. They grab these palm branches and they begin to wave them. As if to say, the one who is headed to Jerusalem, we think is the Messiah who is going to save the nation of Israel. There's some national pride. And that is intensified when we look at what they're saying. They're not just waving these branches, but they're singing a song. They're singing here Psalm 118, specifically verses 26 or 25 and 26. Now, it would not be abnormal for people to sing Psalm 118 on their way to Jerusalem. It was a song that they would sing, a psalm of ascent, as they headed to the city of Jerusalem. It was normal for them to sing this song. But in this moment, as they sing it, there's an added expectation. You see, they're singing Hosanna. The word Hosanna means save now. In other words, save us now, God. Save us now. Now be the moment that you bring deliverance for us. Let now be the moment that you kick those Romans to the curb. May now be the moment that you establish us as a nation. And may you do it through this one. Because blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They would sing that all the time. In other words, blessed are you if you're going to Jerusalem for worship. But in this particular instance, they had added expectation that Jesus was not just another who was going to worship, but he was, in fact, also the king of Israel. Now, this phrase, even the king of Israel, is not a part of Psalm 118. They ad-libbed that one. But it shows what they were expecting. Their expectation was that Jesus was going to go kick the Romans out and establish the nation of Israel as a free people. That was their expectation. That was their hope. So what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus right-sizes their expectations. That's what he does. He right-sizes their expectations. And he does that in kind of a surprising way. He hops on a donkey. Now, if their expectation was that a military leader, here comes the general, is going to ride into town and win a victory, what do you think he would be riding? Chariot, stallion, something like that. And yet, just before he enters the city, Jesus sits upon a donkey. 
Now, why would he do that? Well, he was right-sizing their expectations. And he's fulfilling what is talked about in Zechariah chapter 9. So let's look a little bit more at what Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10 that are quoted here. Verse 9 specifically is what's quoted in John's gospel. But the donkey here right-sizes their expectations by saying, Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Jesus came on a donkey as an expression of humility. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace. So Jesus right-sizes their expectations to let them know that in this approach, he is not coming to bring war, but he's coming to bring peace. Peace primarily that he will establish between God and man as he dies on the cross for our sins. That wasn't their expectation. but That is what Jesus came to do. But not only does he right-size it by coming in peace, but he right-sizes their expectations also by curbing their nationalism in this moment. He says he comes to bring peace to who? To the nations, plural. Jesus came to make a way so that people, regardless of their nationality, might be connected to God through his work on the cross. His rule shall be not just in Israel, but it says his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. See, by hopping on the donkey, Jesus was anchoring himself to Zechariah 9 to right-size their expectations and ours for what he came to do as he entered on that Palm Sunday. It wasn't what they expected, but he came in peace to make peace between God and man through his death on the cross. It made it possible for all the nations, any who trust in him, to be saved. Now, did they get it? Well, not exactly. And the reason why they didn't get it, the crowds didn't get it, was because they were just so fired up about what had just happened. I mean, yeah, he's on a donkey, but he just raised a dead man. And they were so fired up, they didn't quite see it. And not only them, but even the disciples didn't fully get it in that moment. The donkey thing just went right past them. It was not until after Jesus was raised from the dead and Jesus taught them the scriptures that they saw the connection with Zechariah 9 that John was able to include it in his gospel for us today. But Jesus came, and he came to bring peace for us. Now, The question I want to ask is, does Jesus draw us in? In light of who he is, does he draw us in? Are we here today because we're merely honoring a religion? Or are we here today because we want to honor the Savior? Are our emotions elevated today because of what Jesus has done for us? Are we here today just out of pattern and habit and rhythm? Friends, may we never lose the wonder of his mercy. And some of the ways that we can fuel that in our hearts is we can remember our story. I mentioned earlier about the gentleman whose vision was restored at the pool of Siloam. The Pharisees and the chief priests, they really wanted to shut him up. They really wanted to kick him out of the synagogue. And they, they said, you know, hey, what are you doing? And, and, and the guy says, I don't know everything about this Jesus guy, but what I know is that I was blind and now I see. 
And that was enough in that moment. See, friends, if we want our hearts to be drawn to Jesus, we need to stop, and like that man, we need to remember what Jesus has done for us. For many of you in this room who have trusted Christ at some point in the past, I want you to stop and remember what Jesus has done for you. And if you are here today and you have never placed your faith and trust in Christ, I want you to think about what you would like to see Jesus do for you. We're going to look at many of the things he has done for all who have trusted in him in just a moment. But we need to think and personalize this moment, remembering our story. And not only our story, but also remember the story of others. One of the great blessings of being in community is that we get to celebrate and remember what God is doing in others' lives. You know, as, as a pastor, some of you might have a wrong thought about me, that every morning I wake up and there's a deep just river of passion that I have as I open the Scriptures. There are mornings that way, but there are also mornings where it's a struggle to open God's Word and to read it. There are dry times spiritually. But I'm so thankful for a church family because as we gather together in community and we share what God is doing, I'm reminded that God is at work. And that's what happened in this situation. They were reminded that God was at work. They may not all have had their relative raised from the dead, but they got to see Lazarus who was raised from the dead and remembering what God had done enlivened the crowd and drew them to Christ. Being in community with others enlivens our faith. Now, what is it that Christ has done for us as we remember our story and we remember the story of others? Well, friends, he loves us and he died for us. He loved us and he dies for us. He died for us. But God demonstrates his own love for us, Romans 5 tells us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Don't forget it. If your story has forgotten that fact, you will not have the same expectation for Christ and warmth towards him. Remember that truth. He forgave us. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. You know what it tells us that Jesus did with the written set of decrees of things that we have done wrong? It says that they were nailed to the cross. You know what that means? That means that our sin is old news if we are in Christ. Jesus died 2,000 years ago. Our sin nailed to the cross then. If we trust in him, we can be forgiven. If we've forgotten that as part of our story and the story of others, we need to remember it. He's given us new life. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 talks about the hope of the resurrection. Lazarus isn't the only one who gets to experience that. But all who are in Christ have a hope of resurrection in eternity. And we get to walk about in newness of life even today. We're not defined by our past, but we're defined by our heavenly identity in him. If the way that we talk about Jesus is the story that we tell, if it doesn't include the fact that he has given us new life, we need to remember that today. He's advocating for us. Right now, he is advocating for us when we sin. That means that when we, when we sin, Jesus is in heaven saying to God, it's okay, he's with me. What a gift. What a blessing. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 tells us that. Not only that, but he's given us his spirit to empower us to live the life that he has called us to live. 
John chapter 14, verse 16, talks about the spirit that will come and guide us into truth and empower us to live out the life that he's called us to live. What a gift. If if the story that we tell of Jesus doesn't include him giving to us amply of his spirit, we need to remember that today. And we need to remember that he has secured our future. John chapter 14, verse 3, Jesus says, In my Father's house there are many rooms. And I have prepared a place for you that where I am, you may be also. Jesus has secured our eternity. If when we think about Jesus, we don't remember that in our story involves an eternity with him, that then we have, have diminished Jesus to something that he is, that is less than who he really is. And so, friends, this morning as we are here and we remember what Jesus has done for us and for those around us, we need to be reminded that, that we are drawn to him because of who he is and because of how he has expressed who he is towards us. So that we gather here today on Palm Sunday, not just to practice religion, but to celebrate a person, the Son of God, who loves us, who bled and died for us. Now, Jesus came on that first approach to Jerusalem. And he came in peace to make it possible for people from sea to sea to have peace with God and to have a relationship with him. But later on in the scripture, we we are reminded of the fact that Jesus is going to come back again. And later this year, we'll look at that in Revelation chapter 19. And when Jesus comes again, you know where he's going to go? He's going to go to Jerusalem, up and over the Mount of Olives, this time on a stallion, not on a a donkey. And when he approaches, he's going to establish a kingdom. And then after that, you know what he's going to do? He's going to make a new Jerusalem that will be a place that you and I will get to experience if we have trusted in him, a place where our tears are no more, a place where our suffering is no more a place where where the things that that weigh us down today have been rightly taken care of so that we might spend an eternity without their encumbrance. That's the new Jerusalem where we're headed. And so as we end our service today, we're going to sing a song about this this new Jerusalem. And as we we sing this song, you may not know this song, but but as we sing it, here's what I, I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine Jesus approaching that new Jerusalem. And this morning, we get to gather around him as we sing this, celebrating who he is as we are drawn to him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much. Thank you for your your word and your truth and the chance to remember that today. We pray now that you would just draw us, not to to just a a, a religion and not to just a set of, of doctrines, but draw us to yourself that we might remember who you are and what you've done so that we might lift your name up on high as we celebrate you now, headed towards that new Jerusalem. In Jesus' name we pray.